Freedom doesn't need more cheerleaders shouting partisan slogans. It needs thoughtful, principled disciples of liberty. Deep down, we all know that freedom and liberty matter. This is where we discuss why they matter. It's time to elevate the discussion. Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to the Loving Liberty broadcast and podcast. So I, I feel like I'm getting in a little bit of a morbid habit here, but uh, I'm going to get this out of the way early on. It's, this is like eating your vegetables first for me, right? I say I save the entree, the stuff I really want so that I can savor it and enjoy it. And I get the uh, distasteful stuff, cauliflower. I'm looking at you. We're going to get you out of the way first. Brussels sprouts, you're gone. I want to talk a little bit about our march to war with Iran. Now, I don't know if you were aware of this. Uh, there were pretty comprehensive news reports last week about uh, Britain seizing an Iranian oil tanker. And, uh, you know, there's, there's some twists and turns here. It was a Panamanian flagged tanker, but it was owned by Iran or something like this that was accused of shipping crude oil to Syria which apparently is in violation of sanctions that have been levied by Britain. And so the Brits landed Royal Marines on there by helicopter and seized the tanker. Now, look, I have some questions on this as far as, okay, first of all, by what authority does Britain impose sanctions against uh, oil being supplied to Syria? In other words, uh, look, if if, if Iran and Syria have an agreement to... why, why can they not uh, transact commerce here? How does this become Britain's you know, purview, or for that matter, even the United States? I understand somebody's got to project power out there, but, but what it amounts to then is in the name of international law, the Brits commit an act of piracy. They steal this ship from the Iranians. Now, apparently yesterday... As a British tanker was transiting the Strait of Hormuz, accompanied by a British warship, uh, five Iranian boats, I don't know, you know, the little, they're, they're speedy little commando boats or whatever, apparently approached the uh, the oil tanker and tried to force it into Iranian waters. I guess what it looks like is, is the Brits were going to do a little tit for tat, you know, or I mean, sorry, the Iranians were going to do a little tit for tat with the, the Brits. You seize our tanker, we'll take yours. But the British warship warned them off. The Iranians didn't press the issue. They, they broke off and, uh, and did not, you know, take any other action, nor did the Brits have to actually fire on them. But, you know, that ratcheting sound, yes, that is, uh, that's the sound of tensions, again, being ratcheted up a little bit. And I'm just, I, I, I don't know what to say. Other than somebody's got their mind made up and it's not just, you know, the, the U.S. intelligence or national security state. But uh, sometimes the Brits, I think, are they're as hip deep in this as, as anybody. Whatever the U.S. Uh, national security state says, yeah, 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 we'll do it. I look at the way that Julian Assange was under siege for so many years and the way that he was, you know, unceremonially plucked from the Ecuadorian embassy. Yep, the Brits, uh, not not fans of freedom, not fans of, of proper government. They are fans of how do we maintain power and whatever it takes to do it. And, of course, with Big Brother, Uncle Sam, looking over their shoulder, they, they feel pretty bold to do this. But 
I, I'm just I'm looking at this and saying, why must they ratchet it up? So somebody is, is trying to steer a collision course. They're going to get it eventually. And if this makes me a, a terrible American, I, I'll take that risk. But I am much more sympathetic in how I view this in looking at the, I'm, I'm much more sympathetic to the Iranians and their situation than I am to either the Brits or U.S. and what they're doing in the Middle East. I, I think we have people who are, are failing to make the connection that intervention is the incubator of conflict. In fact, I'll take it one step further. Um, I think Pat Buchanan was the one who made this case brilliantly before the 9-11 attacks. Intervention is the incubator of terrorism. He sounded that warning clear back in 2000 when he was running for president. He asked the question, will it take some uh, horrible cataclysmic atrocity on our own soil to awaken us to the going price of global gamesmanship? About a year later, we got the answer to that question. When the Twin Towers came down, when the Pentagon was attacked, and when Flight 93 plowed into a field in Pennsylvania. So just so you don't misunderstand what I'm saying here, I'm not saying that we should just be, you know, we should roll over and be a nation of pacifists. But the di- there's a difference between having a strong defense and being able to stand up for yourself and protect your interests and protect your citizens and to act within the proper scope of government and simply going out there and, and as, again, Pat Buchanan put it, being the world's policeman going around night-sticking troublemakers until you find yourself in a brawl too big to handle. Because I strongly suspect that's the direction we are going. And on the one hand, you know, I, 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 look at, uh, I look at Jacob Hornberger's explanation of the national security state. If there was ever a deal with the devil made by a nation and its people, that would have to be the, the deal of the century. And it came about after World War II. The American people, well, we've seen the horrors of war. We've seen, you know, the threat of communism, the threat of Nazism, the threat of imperialism under, you know, Japan. Oh, we really need to have this strong, absolutely unstoppable national security apparatus to protect us, to make us feel safe so we can sleep well in our beds at night. And in return, the national security apparatus and those who would most benefit from it in terms of power, in terms of profits, said, hey, 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 we'll do that for you. But understand what we're going to do is going to be messy. It's going to be ugly. It's stuff you'd best not know about. And the American people acquiesced and said, OK, well, we don't, we don't care. Just, you know, don't bother us with us. Just make us feel safe. And ever since then, like a cancer, it has just metastasized. We spy on everyone and everything. We being the U.S. government and the national security state. We throw our weight around all around the globe, put sanctions on countries that have never materially harmed us, that have no desire to conquer or dominate us. And we call it justified. Well, somebody's got to be on top here. Somebody's got to, you know, somebody has to rule the roost. If you believe in the the universal law of the harvest, which is, as you sow, so shall you reap. I shudder to think what uh, what kind of a reaping we are going to experience at some point. Now, if if as a nation, we were standing on moral high ground, 
I'd feel much differently, but I, I'm not convinced that's where we are. And I can, I know you're saying, Brian, there are a lot of bad guys out there. I understand that there are. And for all I know, Iran's government may be acting the role of the bad guy. But so is our own. So who are you supposed to root for when everybody's wearing a black hat? I will say this. Militarism has become a de facto religion in this nation. And I mean that in in the sense that we look at our military, we look at the emblems of our military when jets fly by over a parade or a sporting event or something. We ooh and awe with almost a religious-like fervor. When we see a tank, when we see the flag, when we see people in uniform, we see guns. And, oh, look, it's so wonderful. It's there to protect us and make us feel safe. We are in the thrall of a form of idol worship. And I know that's a really unpleasant truth. So I'm, I'm risking, you know, <laughs> risking my social capital here by, by speaking this plainly. But it's very, very clear. As a nation, we appear to have put our faith in militarism. It is our God. It will deliver us. It is where our faith is, and, and that's, that's our strength in the minds of so many people. And I'll just drive that final nail in my coffin home and just tell you it's a false God. It's a fallible God. And the worst part is it takes our attention away from the true source of our nation's greatness, the true source of our liberties, the true source of power that could be ours if we were to look to God as in the supreme judge of the universe, as the founders put it in the Declaration of Independence. Say what you will about uh, their, you know, mistakes and, and their shortcomings as human beings. But it's very clear from their writings and, and from the way that they conducted themselves that they believed that they had a better bet in turning to God and petitioning God to be their protector. And, you know, doing their own part as well. But doing that based with a faith on God than simply to rely on their own military strength. I think we have idols that we are not willing to question. And right now, there are people who are capitalizing on that religious fervor to steer us into a conflict. I don't see this ending well. This is the Loving Liberty broadcast. I'm Brian Hyde. Thanks so much for joining me. All right, so I got it out of my system now. I've, I've, uh, I've done my anti-war rant. I did find an article, though, that I found very helpful because it pointed out some very serious mistakes in how, how I think about international relations. I know I'm not alone in this, and I'm going to share it with you in the hopes that if, if you find yourself in that same quandary, um, maybe this is, is a better or more constructive way to, to think of the ways that countries uh, relate with one another. This was on the American Institute for Economic Research website. Stephen Davies is the author. How to think about international relations. And here's what he's getting at. He says, in everyday speech, people talk about countries as though they were people. People. 
We speak about the United States, China, Russia, France, and so forth, and we speak of them as though they were singular entities like individual persons. But he says that's not all. When talking about international relations or things like trade policy or economic policy, we use language that implies agency. In other words, we use language that speaks about decisions, choices, and actions of various kinds. Things like, in 1939, Germany invaded Poland. Or China is engaged in widespread theft of intellectual property. Or America is pursuing a particular policy toward Iran. Like I say, guilty. But uh, Stephen Davies says one of the fundamental features of human life is that the language we use to talk about the world both reflects and shapes our understanding of the world, the way we think about it. And this is all the more powerful for often being unconscious. In this case, the kind of language and even the grammar reveals a number of deep-seated assumptions and also helps to shape and direct the way we look at the world. So what he's getting at here is referring to countries or political communities as singular entities that decide and act has a whole series of assumptions built into the language. The grammar of this language has some of these entities as subjects acting and doing things and others as objects being acted upon, as in the case of the U.S. and Iran above. The language means that countries are seen as singular entities that decide and act in the same way that individual human beings do. Now, he says, if you stop and think about this, it becomes obvious that there is something wrong with this. After all, humans are not a hive species like ants or bees. As a species, we don't decide and act with a single mind or will. Rather, a political community or society is a large number of particular individual men and women. So there may be a process of collective decision-making that arrives at decisions that are binding on individual members of the community, but that doesn't mean a single will or purpose or even a single collective acting agency. That's a good point. I, and I, I, I often don't consider this when speaking of international relations. He says, if you start to think more carefully about this, you'll realize that there's very, actually very little in the way of collective decision-making process, much less shared, uh, shared rather purpose and action. Language and the way we use it is obscuring reality rather than revealing it. One way, to, one way of thinking about this is to imagine that you meet an alien from another planet who's been learning about Earth from television broadcasts and is trying to find out more about our planet. Hearing reporters constantly say things like the remarks he cited above, the alien asks you, can you show me the United States? So what would you show them? I mean, you could get out an atlas. You could point out the part of the map that shows the U.S. It's not that, however, that's doing anything. Alternatively, you could show them people living and working in the U.S., but that also wouldn't be satisfactory. So in what sense are they pursuing a foreign policy, for example? Okay, so now you show the alien the president or maybe Congress in session or other major public figures. Here you'd be getting closer to what the alien wants, to, wants you to explain, but it's still not the correct answer because there are few who would say that the president or Congress is the United States, even if they think they are. The reality is, in discussions like this, terms like America, Russia, China are shorthand we use them to avoid having to use more accurate but clumsy and awkward expressions. Instead of speaking about China, we should say the political community composed of the people inhabiting the part of the world commonly known as China. A very, a very varied interest, tastes and inclinations. 
the complex and changingly, uh, constantly changing relations between them. Wow. Yeah, that's that's more of a manifesto than, than a simple explanation. And, and, and Stephen Davies says, technically, we're using the trope of, uh, I'm not even sure if I'm saying this right, synodoke, in which a part or aspect of something is described as though it were the whole of something. Now, performing this exercise of expanding singular nouns into the full statement is actually very useful, though, and revealing because it clarifies certain things and it poses a whole series of questions. Considering those questions may then lead to a significant shift of thinking or perception and a recognition of realities that were previously obscured by the language people use. In particular, thinking in this way raises the question of who or what has agency in the kinds of discussions that our confused alien was picking up. Who or what makes decisions? Who or what acts and how is this done? If we talk about Chinese or American policy, who has formulated the policy and why have they done this? How was it formulated? You see, asking questions like this leads to a lot more clarity, even if we can't answer the questions with our current knowledge. It's clear the entire population does not have agency in any of these cases. Sometimes some individuals have agency, but not all or many. Take, for example, the statement, China is engaged in the theft of intellectual property. That means, in fact, specific people and organized groups of people or companies living in the part of the planet commonly known as China and being part of the political community made up of the people living there are engaged in theft of intellectual property. So it doesn't make sense to think of the entire population of a political community in a specific place as having agency. Now, what, though, if the political community in question is one with a collective decision-making process that involves consultation and discussion between all adult members of the political community? Now, leaving aside the problems of the inherent reality of politics, which is what we're speaking of here, this still doesn't mean that we can speak of the adult population as a whole deciding on a course of action, much less acting on or even executing that policy. In other words, many will dissent. There's not a single or common purpose, but in fact, many often conflicting purposes. And above all, the entire electorate or political community doesn't act directly. So when we use shorthand like China or the United States, and we speak of actions in the sphere of international relationships, what we're actually talking about is the governments of the United States and China. Now, in, in my defense, I do, try to, I do try to make this distinction as often as I can. But Stephen Davies says we're speaking about the relatively small number of people in a particular political community who have political power and who can make decisions that will then be put into effect. We're also speaking of people like diplomats and the military who are directly controlled by and responsible to the small number who make the decisions and who put those decisions into effect. He says, when we speak about the actions and policies in the sphere of international relationships, we should be very explicitly care. We should be careful to very explicitly say the Chinese government or the government of the United States and not China or the United States. He says, if you want to unwrap these more accurate statements, there would be something like the group of people with political power and decision making and executive capacity in the political community made up of the many people of varied interests, beliefs and inclinations who inhabit the part of the world commonly known as China or the United States. I know it's it's too much to say. We all want to do the shorthand. Well, China did this and the U.S. does that. I'm going to come back to this article here in a few moments. We're going to take a break here shortly, but. 
I think it's important, even if it's just in your own mind. Look, I'm, I'm not going to suggest that, you know, you should always, you know, speak with that very unpacked statement and, and make sure that it's, it's spelled out very clearly who you're talking about. But I think in the interest of, of clearly understanding, you should probably consider thinking in these terms. I would also say if, if we find ourselves speaking in collective terms, which is very easy to do, and I do it too sometimes. Well, you know, we are steering a collision course with Iran. Okay, I'm not steering a collision course with Iran. I don't know anybody there. I don't even have the capacity to steer a collision course with them. But see, I lapse into that collective mindset. Well, we, meaning the United States, meaning the government of the United States. You see what I'm saying, right? Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. You're listening to the Loving Liberty Show with Brian Hyde. I'm Brian Hyde, as you may have guessed. I'm sorry. I just uh, I went with it. Maybe it was a wrong thing to do, but it just seemed like uh, I don't know. I was hearkening back to to an old uh, episode of WKRP in Cincinnati, where Les Nesman has his theme playing, and it's you know winner of the Silver Sow Award. You know Les Nesman, most coveted newsman in all of Cincinnati. Les Nesman, and now with the latest news from Les Nesman, here is Les Nesman. To which, at which point, Les sidles up to the mic and says, hello, I'm Les Nesman. <laughs> okay, forgive me. Little trip down memory lane. We're talking about how we think about international relations. It's, it's an article by Stephen Davies published on the American Institute for Economic Research.org. That's A-E-I-R. No, A-I-E-R dot org. And I have to tell you, this has opened my eyes in, in some surprising ways because I find myself guilty of referring to nations, you know, in that singular sense. Well, you know, if Iran would just sit down and shut up, you know. But Iran isn't just a singular entity with a singular will and ability to think and act for itself. And I think Stephen Davies has a great point and. uh you know, the way we speak about these kind of things shapes the way that we understand it. And sometimes we load things up with assumptions that may not necessarily be so. In fact, he says one of the most damaging aspects of the way we usually speak about public policy and international relations in particular is the way that it leads us to conflate countries, meaning the social and political community as a whole, with governments, the people who have and exercise power in those political communities. That's a good point. And it's something I hear people do constantly. Well, you know, we, meaning the U.S. government, America, meaning the U.S. government. Yeah, we, we just lump it all into one ball of wax. He says this leads to ways of thinking that are often misguided and often damaging, such as hostility toward the entire population of another part of the world rather than the people with power there. The normal way of speaking also obscures a whole range of matters and precludes us asking a whole series of interesting questions. Who are the people with power? How did they get it? Why did they decide to do what they did? Why do others obey or go along with it? 
analytically, this also means you should think about international relations in particular in a new way, one that's not reflected in popular discussion or reporting in the media. The way you should think about it from this perspective is as follows. Stephen Davies says the surface of the planet is divided into self-governing or nominally self-governing sovereign units. Each of these is a political and social community made up of the people who live on that part of the planet's surface. The people who make up these communities are very heterogeneous, heterogeneous, sorry, and many have connections of a personal or business nature with people from other parts of the world who live in other political communities. Now, within each political community, there are ruling groups. These are the people who have power to make decisions that can then be enforced, if necessary, on all of the other people in that political community. This subset are the people with political power. Now, he points out there are other people with agency within the community, but their agency is weaker and diffuse, whereas the agency of the ruling group is relatively greater and more concentrated. In particular, they have the capacity that the other people do not have to legitimately deploy and use deadly force. And he says, notice that in this particular context, it doesn't matter how the people with power got their position or how it is legitimized. But it does matter, of course, when we when we discuss other things from this point of view, international relations and things like global trade policy are relations between ruling groups. International relations are not the relations, exchanges or agreements between those people and organizations that don't belong to those ruling groups. An important point is that although ruling groups may be internally varied and divided, they're much less so at any point in time than the population as a whole. They'll typically have certain strong common interests. Many of these derive from the geographical location and situation of the part of the planet they control. Now, this is important because it means that the interests of the group controlling a particular set of a particular part of the world will remain constant for long periods, regardless of the actual people who make up that ruling group at any time or their ideology and beliefs. Other interests reflect the particular economic and other circumstances of a given time, and these will change. So as long as India was part of the British Empire, protecting the sea route to India was a vital interest for the ruling group in Britain. But this was no longer the case after 1947. Stephen Davies says these interests between ruling groups may conflict for all sorts of reasons. The ruling groups then have to weigh up how important the interests are and how far they're prepared to go to defend them. The problem is that miscalculation by one ruling group can lead to armed conflict, as we've seen many times in history. But the really important point is this. Just as we should not conflate or confuse countries, meaning entire political communities and governments, the ruling groups of those political communities, so should we not assume that ruling groups and the entire populations of their political community have common or shared interests. Wow, does that ring true? Sometimes they do, says Stephen Davies, but not always. Frequently, the interests of the ruling groups are at odds with the actual interests of a large part of the political community, or maybe even a majority of them. Imperialism is perhaps the classic example of this, since empires don't serve the interests of the majority of the population, even of the imperial power, but they do bring huge benefits of various kinds to the ruling group of that power. Moreover, he says, while there are frequently conflicts of interest between ruling groups, there are almost never such conflicts between the general populations of political communities. 
case in point would be the conversation a good friend of mine had about 10, maybe 12 years ago in Salt Lake City, sitting in the lobby of Little America. And he was having a conversation with an Iranian citizen. They were just sitting down there, both reading the newspaper, and they got to talking, and he learned that this guy was from Iran, and, and, and just started a dialogue about why is there this tension between our countries, and, and, and in the course of that conversation, it was absolutely clear, and my friend said, this Iranian guy says, we love you. We don't hate you at all. In fact, he ended up giving him a hug when their conversation was done. The Iranian people do not hate the American people. But the ruling class of both of our countries are definitely acting like a bunch of belligerents determined to have a head-on collision at 100 miles an hour. And it's not very appealing to think that they're taking us along for the ride. So think about that. The conflict is between the, the ruling groups more so than the general populations of these communities. And this reflects a couple of things. First is the aforementioned variety and heterogeneity of the interests, concerns, and aspirations of the larger population. That's what makes it less likely that they'll have a specific common interest than the smaller, relatively more homogenous ruling group. The other is the general disparity between human relations based upon power and those founded on voluntary exchange of all kinds, including but not confined to trade. The first kind are inherently conflictual because they ultimately rest upon the two relations of submission and domination, which outside of a very specific situation are always zero sum relations. The second, by contrast, are always positive sum because they rest on the foundation of mutual benefit. This means historically the policy that liberals and individualists have always urged when and by the way, he means classical liberals when thinking about international relations is free contact between the people who make up the populations of different different political communities and as little active role for ruling groups as possible, both with regard to internal politics and external relations with other communities. Does that kind of fly in the face of what, what you feel like we've been taught? Well, you know, this is why we have diplomats. This is why we have the State Department. So they can go out there and interact with these other nations around the world. I think we'd be better off if the people were better equipped to freely interact. And governments were chained down and prevented from mischief. Stephen Davies says one solution was the classical liberal idea of people's diplomacy, which looked to strengthen and systematize the voluntary and personal relations between people from different political communities at the expense of formal relations between ruling groups. The insight expressed in works like George Washington's farewell address was that there should be as much contact and trade as possible between people and no more formal contact between governments than necessary. Isn't that a fascinating way of looking at things? Because when governments get involved, really, what happens? It becomes about power. What's happening right now in the Persian Gulf has nothing to do with our government's prime directive of keeping you and I free. It has everything to do with enforcing the power dictates and policy dictates of the ruling group in our nation's capital. Kind of puts a little bit different light on Well, Where's this conflict coming from? It ain't coming from us. And it ain't coming from the Iranian people. 
Somehow we got to limit the contact between these governments. <laughs> I'll get to work thinking on that. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. All right. Hopefully I haven't struck too angry a tone in the earlier segments of the program, but this is stuff that really weighs on my mind. And and I hope it comes through that, uh, you know, I, I hope for some people it's going to seem like, man, you really hate America, Brian. Um, it shouldn't come through that way because I, I am speaking as a friend. I am speaking from the position of someone who loves his country enough that I'm I'm willing to stick my neck out. I'm willing to be unpopular to point out areas where I feel like we are going astray and where we need to correct course. And I guess my point here is if, if I really if I hated my country, I'd just keep my mouth shut or better still, I'd be encouraging it. No, no. Keep doing what you're doing. Go ahead, government. Keep. Keep the pedal to the metal, Captain. Everything is great. But I know it isn't. And I suspect that uh, you probably sus- that you probably see that things are not as they should be. It's not a matter of personalities. It's not a matter of, well, if we just get the right person in the right office, we could fix all this. First of all, you have to understand, what are the principles that are at stake. Are, are we violating certain principles? Is, is our, our government being allowed to operate outside of the correct principles under which it should be operating? And if so, what are they? How can we get back on course? And that's something that right now uh, a great deal of my fellow Americans are either not interested in or just simply unaware of. Too many cool things on TV. Too many, you know, cold beers in the fridge. We have other we have better things to do. I'm not trying to, you know, overthrow everybody's, uh, you know, mental government. And you must now think as I do. But I'm definitely trying to get you to think a little bit deeper about subjects like this so that you don't fall prey to whatever, you know, the bamboozlers in, in your your preferred media sources happen to be saying. That means, yeah, you should be questioning deeply anything that I say, as in don't believe it don't take it at face value don't 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 think that i have all the answers i don't but i'd like to think i'm asking some of the right questions to help us get to the right answers found a great article this is courtesy of uh, my friend joe carey who you can hear coming up at noon mountain time this afternoon on the loving liberty radio network he posted an article about how chick-fil-a is beating every competitor by training workers to say please and thank you. Now, I don't get to Chick-fil-A very often, and it's it's because I have this, well, I, I think I have some kind of mental illness where I don't like to sit in long lines, <laughs> and it never fails. There is a line around the building and all the way out into the parking lot, and for what looks like about a half mile down the road, every time I go by Chick-fil-A. But they really do have great food. And I've been extremely impressed every time that I've seen them. When you tell them, thank you, there's no, yeah, right, whatever, man. <laughs> sure thing, dude. They always say things like, it's my pleasure. And the article here from Business Insider says the secret to their success is as simple as saying please and thank you. I mean, statistically, the chicken chain is the most polite 
chain in the restaurant business. That's according to a QSR magazine annual drive through report, which was released on Monday. Employees at Chick-fil-A were the most likely of the 15 chains surveyed to say please and thank you and to smile at drive through customers. Chick-fil-A workers were also as the second uh, most likely to have a pleasant demeanor, only topped by the up-and-coming fast food chain PDQ. Okay, that's one I'm not familiar with. According to the report, Chick-fil-A employees say thank you in 95.2% of drive through encounters, based on data from nearly 2,000 visits to 15 restaurant chains. By comparison, KFC had a thank you rate of 84.9%. McDonald's rate was just 78.4%, putting it in 14th place out of the 15 chains analyzed. Mark Moritakis, Senior Director of Hospitality and Service Design, told QSR, It's all about speed and accuracy, but we know our customers appreciate that we can be nice while being fast and accurate. He said, Eye contact and smiling go a long way in the drive through experience. Now, Chick-fil-A has taken pains to make its drive through strategy as customer-friendly as possible. According to QSR, the chain has dedicated drive through teams made up of compatible Chick-fil-A employees and sends employees with tablets out to the drive through lane to take orders when lines start to form. And I have to give them credit. They do get that line moving through pretty quick. While small pleasantries are easy to dismiss in the multi-billion dollar restaurant business, these little details have played a key role in setting Chick-fil-A apart from the competition. In 2015, Chick-fil-A generated more revenue per restaurant than any other fast food chain in the U.S. <laughs> That's got to be bad news to the social justice warrior types. That's hate chicken. The chain's average sales uh, per restaurant reached nearly $4 million. Meanwhile, the average KFC sold about a $1 million in 2015. Analysts have said that customer service is key to Chick-fil-A's success. Superior customer service drives higher sales per unit, contributing to the chain's ability to generate greater revenue than chains like KFC or Pizza Hut or Domino's with more than twice as many U.S. locations. According to Chick-fil-A, the chain has the upper hand when it comes to customer service because it invests more than other companies in training its employees. The chicken chain's unique business structure in which each franchisee is only allowed to open one Chick-fil-A location by the way, I believe they're all closed on Sunday, by the way, which, I mean, one-seventh of the week, they're not even, you know, cooking. But it allows for more hands-on supervision and training. And whatever they're doing clearly seems to be working. I saw a really interesting uh, post by uh, Isaac Morehouse, who is one of the founders of Praxis and also uh, the founder of Crash, which is helping young people launch careers without having to go to college, having to take on deep, deep student debt. And I thought this was really interesting. Great entry employees. This is the high correlation that he found with great uh, entry employees. In fact, the the top performers in their current batch on Crash.co, all of these young people either had a lawn mowing business, worked at (laughs) Chick-fil-A, created a blog, podcast, or project, worked to improve their writing via practice, and worked to improve their speaking via Toastmasters, etc. If you haven't checked out Praxis, or for that matter, if you haven't checked out Crash.co, I would really recommend it. We actually had Isaac as a guest on this program. Um, Man, it's, it's been a month now. Time flies. 
but I think he has a really solid alternative. Um, Some people are going to want to go the traditional college route. Yeah, this is the way we have to go. You go to school, get that degree, you know, earn good grades and, and take it from there. But he's much more of the mindset of, hey, if there's a way to get a jump on your career that involves stepping up and showing what you can produce. You don't just tell an employer on your, uh, on your resume, well, these are the skills that I have. You show them. You, do, you demonstrate familiarity with tools. And by the way, the stuff, getting training at writing, getting training at better public speaking, knowing how to podcast, knowing how to blog... I know we tend to think of them as, well, those are just, you know, kind of fun hobbies and, you know, a great way to pass the time. But those are useful. I mean, if you consider how much e-commerce is a part of most businesses, even brick and mortar businesses. Somebody who has those skills and can bring those provable skills to the table is definitely going to get their attention. And it's getting results. Crash.co. Check it out or check out Praxis. And if you haven't, uh, if you haven't really, you know, had a chance to, to hear Isaac Morehouse, I'll have to see if I can hunt up. I'll, I'll post it on, on, the, on the Facebook page, on the Loving Liberty Facebook page, if I can find it. Uh, there, you know, this, is, this is the downside of, of as, as many programs as we do and as many podcasts as we post. Um, sometimes it can be a little bit tough to go back and search up a specific one, but he has such a positive message. And by the way, Crash.co comes from uh, Crash Your Career. Ditch the gatekeepers and be your own credential. You want to talk about some disruptive technology? This is it. And I mean that in the best possible way. Morehouse says, until recently, there wasn't much of a way to show what you can make unless you happened to work with your hands. But for people who know how to work a keyboard, know how to work social media, know how to work ideas, those opportunities are there. Might be worth looking into if you know a young person who's maybe standing at that crossroads and trying to decide, what do I do? Where do I go? As long as we approach it from there isn't a one-size-fits-all, you know, solution, you might be surprised at the possibilities out there. This is Loving Liberty. Stick around. Hour two is just around the corner. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network.